This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Ward School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. Uh, just a reminder, you listen to us at our new time, noon Eastern, on Fridays. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Joining me in the studio is Lee Chen Ren, the Director of Modern Alpha at Wisdom Tree. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer sale investment products. And these are guests of their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a great show today, Professor. Uh, get it, getting your take on what's been happening here in 2020. It's been a little while since we've been <laughs> live on the air. So a lot going on in the beginning part of the year here. Uh, then we're going to have a great uh, outlook of things that are changing in the 2020s, how the future of global economy, global coordination is changing with, with our first with our guest for the hour. Uh, but Professor, give us your sense. There's a lot been happening in the markets to start the year. Yeah. Well, this is our first live uh, performance. Uh, wow. Markets are boiling. Dow crossed 29,000. Everybody this morning it's pulled back since, which of course 29,000 is only 3.5% from 30,000, which of course will be what everyone will be hyping. I'll, I'll talk about the markets in just a second. We did have a monthly employment report uh, this morning, um, which I thought was pretty good. It it, uh, it came in a little below on the numbers, but I was fearing maybe a, a, a stronger shortfall because, as you remember, the uh, the November and December numbers were were uh, reports were really blockbusters, way above expectations. It certainly was not bad. Unemployment stayed at uh, you know that that low thirty three point five percent, and the U six, which is the underemployment rate. Uh, uh, the broadest measure fell to an all-time low of 6.7. I say all-time low. This measure was only invented in the early 1990s, which includes not only those people who are, you know, uh, actively seeking work and not finding it, but all those that are discouraged or working part-time, wish they were working full-time, that have quit recently, and it's a very broad measure of that. That's, that really has now fallen to the lowest it's ever been that slack unemployment uh, rate. So, you know, there's there it's it's a tight labor market, but um, the the uh, participation rate remained at 63.2, uh, which is just one tenth below its uh, uh, recent high. So there seems to be enough people coming in. I I I thought it was good. One thing to note: interesting. Wages were on the soft side. Year over year was expected to be 3.1. It only came in to 9. And something else, hours worked, has been revised downward. Now, this is interesting um, because hours worked is used to to look at productivity numbers. And um, we the GDP estimate for fourth quarter for the firm I follow, which uh, used to to be called macro advisors, but it has been absorbed by IHS market, and now it's, uh, but they have the same people there. They're predicting that fourth quarter is 2.6%. They're way above consensus, but they've had a habit of being right. Uh, with hours worked soft and 2.6 GDP, we may have a spurt of productivity in the fourth quarter. Remember, we had a poor productivity growth in the third, so this might be good as far as productivity is concerned. Let's go to the markets. I mean, Honestly, I'm a little bit worried of a momentum-driven market. Um, uh, I know it's off a bit today, but I think people are piling on trend trend followers. Uh, we saw that in late uh, 2017, early 2018. I remember that. It went vertical in January and then crashed 
in February. Um, this we have a lot of trend followers, momentum players, more than anyone else. Uh, we're selling at twenty times earnings. Um, that's not crazy, not low, okay long term, but certainly not cheap. We're going to begin earnings in the next week or two. Earnings season, earnings were really pretty soft in the fourth quarter, and. This year, I don't know whether we're going to get more than 5% growth in earnings. So, you know, the question is, what is what is driving it? Um, uh, again, momentum players, uh, the Iran confrontation has cooled significantly. Uh, that is good. The Fed is providing a lot of liquidity. The repo market and all that is very normalized. They're keeping the rates, both the... Um, Fed funds and the SOFR, which is the Secured Overnight Funding Rate, which is LIBOR now, the replacement of LIBOR down to 155. They're, they, they've got a whole handle now on that short-term rate, no problem providing liquidity there. Um, so the question is, what's there not to like <laughs> as far as investors are concerned? Um, so I think these are the, the 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 factors that are facing stocks. I I'm looking for a more modest year of you know zero to ten percent increase uh, in the averages, but at the rate it's going, you know we, we could reach that in a, in a couple of months. Um, uh, and at that point, I think it would be vulnerable to disappointments. Yeah. So when, when you think about that twenty P ratio, that helps you set your your estimates as you think about looking forward. I and mean, there's some commentary about, you know, is it is the market really f- fully valued, fair valued? How do you think about this? You know, sort of bigger context of where the valuations are today. Yeah. Well, again, I've argued that the new normal is you know eighteen to twenty PE, uh, not fifteen, which is nineteenth century or twentieth century. I'm not going to go through the reasons here why, but uh, also in a world of very low interest rates, which are going to stay low. It looks like the Treasury is under 2%. With these wage growth figures and productivity growth figures, we're going to get CPI next month. It looks to be modest. I mean, I, I don't see anything pushing those those rates up soon. So you got to really... You know, um, you know, fixed income is not providing any, uh, any any competition. Low real rates. We've talked about that. That's very demographic. It's not Fed induced. It's going to be with us for a long time. Uh, uh, Twenty. You know, being the new normal means we could you know go way above it or way below it, depending on sentiment and what actually does transpire i mean there's all surprises you know at year end who knew that there was going to be a you know an iran flare-up in a few days and suddenly that could become anything could happen in the market always is that range well we did see though how oil although it did move upward uh and was muted in comparison i mean the fact that we are now self-sufficient in oil doesn't mean that oil won't go up if there's disruptions in the Mideast, but it means that the the harm to the U.S. is greatly reduced by that, and the market knows it, and that's why we've had that mild reaction. So whatever flare-up there might be in the Middle East, um, uh, as far as the oil market's concerned, that and and therefore the impact on the U.S. economy much less than certainly would have happened uh, 20 years ago and even really 10 years ago. Anything that could support, if you think about that 5% earnings growth figure, anything that could be the catalyst for faster earnings growth? is the well, China yeah, situation? a drop in the dollar, which is high on purchasing power parity. I mean, that would be a big boost. If we, you know, if the dollar were down 5 or 10%, uh, you know, with the 40% of S&P profits coming from sales abroad, that'll be a boost. Um GDP growth this year looks again like 2%. I mean, we're a little over 2%. If we get 26 in the fourth quarter, we're about 2.2 for last year, 2.3, which is above the Fed's long-run estimate of 1.8. Um, we we have had, I mean, it's it's it, for late in the cycle, GDP growth has been pretty good over the last three, four years under the Trump administration. And, uh, you know, no, nothing like the 3, 4% that, you know, he was projecting and all that, but a, a, a bump up from... Uh, from the Obama years, and uh, certainly we've had, we've had uh, again 
uh, really good growth. Growth at the lower end of real wages have been really the strongest part. We uh, The underemployment report, the U6 going to a new uh, all-time low is, again, the, 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 the more marginalized members of the economic community are finally being drawn in uh, to the the market, which is, um, you know, a, a, a favorable sign. Um, uh, again, you know, sentiment can be shocked either way with events that go on, but at this particular juncture, no recession, no Fed tightening, no Fed loosening. Markets are very, fixed income are very happy with where the curve is right now, where the Fed is right now, and um, there's there's no clouds ahead on that. Well, very good, Professor. Thank you for starting off starting us off on the show today. Okay, we'll talk next week. Bye. Very good. We're going to look a little bit into the future. Uh, we're going to have a, a guest who produced a, a great, interesting document on ten trends shaping, you know, the defining the new world, as he called it, the global ten trends defining the new world. We're going to be talking with Bruce Melman. Uh, Bruce, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me on. Tell us a little bit about your background, the firm you work with, and uh, just a little bit how you are looking at the world and, and what got you to this this new report on the ten trends for the new the new world. Wow! In uh, in thirty seconds. So, um, I have a bipartisan public policy firm here in Washington. Seven Republicans, seven Democrat veterans of Hill and uh, and various administrations, as well as uh, industry roles. And we work with organizations and with businesses and, and NGOs that are trying to uh, effectively understand and anticipate and deal with political risk, educate policymakers. We do a lot of lobbying, but a lot of uh, strategic uh, analysis and uh, and planning as well. And so with that as, as broad background, um, what we found is that uh, there's the world's changing. It's changing ever more quickly. And uh, businesses that are trying to make decisions about what to invest in and when to invest uh, and uh, and how to engage with consumers all around the world are seeing various trends, rising populism, backlash against technology, uh, concerns by uh, consumers both in the U.S., the EU, and for that matter, China and elsewhere about things such as rising uh, inequality or, or, or climate challenges. Uh, and they are increasingly impacting politics and policy decisions. And so what we sought to do here with this uh, with this analysis, which I presume you guys will link to, but otherwise if you go to, at, to my Twitter handle, at B-P-M-E-H-L-M-A-N, I made it my uh, my – uh, pinned tweet because we uh, we walk through these ten trends, trying to take a much bigger picture look at where are we, how do we get here, and then where are things going. Yeah, we got some good extended time with you, so I guess we're going to get through a bunch of them. Um, but you know, and before we dive into the the this D global story. Is you know the we, for a market focused show we've been talking a lot about politics on this show. I mean, how 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 do you think you know with your experience uh, at your firm and, and your personal background? How would you say you know interacting with companies or who people you're interacting with has changed in in recent years the political sphere today? Like, what, what is there any focus that you you've noticed in sort of the long term trends versus today? Yeah, so I'm old enough that that when I started it was indeed different and. Um, the core difference, the most defining factor for the world, let alone politics, is disruption. If you look, you know, America has a federal election every two years. And if you look at the 10 federal elections from 1960 through 1978, there were 10 of them. Three of them saw the party that controlled the House, the Senate, and or the White House change hands. You had 10 more federal elections from 1980 through 1998. And of those 10, four were change elections. This century, we've had 10 more federal elections, 2000 through 2018, and eight of the 10 have been change elections. Hmm. And it's not just in the United States. Sometimes it's right-of-center folks like the populist in Brazil, Bolsonaro. Sometimes it's the socialist like AMLO in Mexico. Sometimes you have a country like France, where for decades the center-left and the center-right parties took turns dissatisfying the French people. And they turned to a 39-year-old who is a non-politician from a party that hadn't existed before, Macron, and said, you give it a shot. And so what, as we look at the big picture, we find this reflects how technology has upended the economy. It has upended 
media and how we get information, how we share information, how we understand and process information. Uh, it has we've seen, and the point of this presentation is looking at the uh, disruption in geopolitics. But we've even seen a a, uh, a very disruptive uh, societal or cultural environment. You know, if you go back, if America was a TV show 50 years ago, we were father knows best, overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly paternalistic. Most folks hadn't gone to college. If we're a TV show today, we're modern family, so much more diverse and I think a lot stronger for our diversity. Women have many more opportunities. Many more folks have gone to college, but very non-traditional families. It used to be that 69% of the country were both white and Christian, and now it's well less than, uh, than 40%. And those changes, uh, all three of them have been occurring in an accelerating fashion over the last three decades, and that's just disruptive to folks. It's not inherently bad, but it's it's changed people's sense of their possibilities, their ability to realize the American dream, their ability to have a career uh, that allows them to pay their health care costs and to feed their family, their ability, I can tell you this firsthand, to parent. You know, it's parenting is a lot harder in the era of social media and, and the phone and the cell phone or the smartphone. Uh, and so everybody's trying to make sense of this rapidly changing and disruptive world and they don't really trust the establishment to have their back. So they're looking for change agents. It's interesting talking about so the, you know, the three of 10 changing parties versus eight of 10. So is that constant just people just being, you know, dissatisfied and wanting change? Is that something you see in this upcoming election? Is that uh, the constant change? Well, it's as a rule, it's hard to bet against change in the modern era. Yeah. Um, a, a, a One of the many questions, there's so many questions, and we spend a ton of time thinking and talking about the 2020 elections. Question one is, if it were, say, Joe Biden, the current Democratic frontrunner against Donald Trump, which of those two is the agent of change right. candidate? Now, technically, well, Trump's in, so Biden would be a change from Trump. But Joe Biden spent 44 years in Washington. 36 as a senator, 8 as a vice president. Um, he's more of a back to the future. He's, he's part of what he promises is not quite a return to normalcy, but, but he, he, would argue, he would argue it's a return to, uh, to sanity. But others would say, no, he's a career Washington politician who would bring you more of what you voted for Donald Trump to change. And so you will probably find a debate between who is the real uh, vo uh, opportunity for change between the two parties. If it were Senator Sanders, it's kind of hard to argue that he's not the change agent. Uh, he's, uh, you know, he's he's out there for sure. But uh, it's it, for now, it feels like it's more likely to be Senator or for former Vice President Biden. Well, we're talking with Bruce Melman of Melman Castagnetti, Rosen and Thomas, a, a political oriented firm in, in Washington, thinking about how to. Um, you know, sort of government relations and, and big issues that people are, are working on. Um, and so when, if you were to say the – so Biden, I think, is one of the, you know, the sort of leading candidates of the Democratic Party. Do you, would you say who are you watching as a, a surprise candidate or somebody who, who can – who might get the nomination there within the Democratic side? Yeah, you know, uh, I've, uh, I've had my eye on the, on the 58 candidates who, who came forward for a while now. Um, it's winnowed down to, what, 10 or, or, or 12. Uh, it's everything I know about politics told me two things, and I've spent my entire life reading about it and my career watching it, two things. First, there was no way Donald Trump was going to win the nomination, and then there was no way he was going to win the White House. That's one of the things that my entire career told me. And number two, there was no way Joe Biden, you know, a 78-year-old uh, white male uh, who had already run for president twice, uh, was going to get the Democratic nomination. Well, obviously, I was entirely wrong about Donald Trump, and it's feeling like I'm wrong about Joe Biden. Uh, you know, you've got the, the very progressive lane that has two sitting senators in it. Um, if either of them were to drop out and endorse the other, you'd have a bit of a juggernaut of a candidate. But I don't see – I definitely don't see Senator Sanders stepping out. Uh, he's now ahead of Senator Warren, and I don't see Senator Warren stepping out. So they'll keep dividing – the 40-ish percent of the Democratic Party that's uh, very progressive, uh, you know, the Democratic primary electorate that's very progressive, that leaves you 60 or so percent on the other side, you know, and that there are various constituencies within that, but but uh, none more critical to to succeed than the African American vote, 
and uh, and African American Democratic primary voters overwhelmingly support, appreciate, and like uh, former Vice President to uh, to President Barack Obama, Joe Biden. Yep. And it seems like he just they're just they're sticking thick and thin, and that alone is a huge amount. It's hard to see. A former Republican who was then an independent, who is who's a billionaire whose name is synonymous with Wall Street, you know, to take nothing away from Michael Bloomberg's extraordinary life success, but it just doesn't feel like the Democratic primary electorate's going to pick uh, the uh, the eighth richest man on the planet. Um, uh, a lot of folks like uh, Mayor Pete, uh, who is uh, about as gifted as any communicator I've ever seen, but he's certainly young. His he was mayor of a very small city. A lot of folks think he's untested. Um, and uh, and he's particularly struggled with African-American voters for a variety of reasons. Um, so it doesn't feel like he can get it. Uh, Senator Klobuchar, if if uh, if it were just reading transcripts of things folks say, boy, she just she's so smart on the in, in the debate stage and uh, and uh, and thoughtful. And she's got a great track record as a uh, as a consensus building uh, person willing to work in the middle, you know, a moderate with a track record of success. But she just hasn't caught fire, and I can't see why she would uh, in the near term. So it just feels to me that in the end you see a a Joe Biden going to Milwaukee either with 50 percent of pledged delegates or with a plurality of pledged delegates. And after the first round, the superdelegates show up, and then he he goes over the top. Now, he might have been able to go over the top without the superdelegates. So one of the millions of things we're watching is if the Sanders vote, once again, feels like they get screwed by superdelegates. You know, is they going to then just rally around the flag to vote against President Trump, or are they going to feel embittered that that uh, that somehow they were uh, the, the system was rigged against them again? Yeah, and so as you think about what the implication for businesses and what the what all the things you're the people who are using your firm like how are they thinking about this political dynamics as what they're asking for what they're trying to work with you on what how how does that how do you see that well for most of the folks we we don't we don't consult on elections we consult on public policy and so our job uh if you are uh if you're a hospital that we work with or if you're a manufacturer who we work with uh, our job is to help you uh, educate policymakers on both sides of the aisle to understand who you are and what you do and what makes you tick and what sort of policies would allow you to innovate more or hire more uh, around the country and what sort of policies or ideas might uh, might put you out of business or put you at a disadvantage to a competitor, a domestic or foreign. Uh, for the, particularly a lot of our business folks, the, the, the biggest single uh, unexpected disruptive challenge has been in the area of deglobalization, a trend that for two or three decades we saw, certainly uh, since the end of the Cold War, was America was the only sole power around the world, and, uh, and you saw market reforms in China and in India and in the EU uh, and, uh, and the former Soviet bloc, and suddenly there was this massively larger addressable market that you could sell into and you could hire from and you could export to and, and expand in. Uh, and, uh, and that defined the 90s, that defined the 2000s, um, but, uh, but we've seen a lot of backlash to that. And so uh, the, the real question, you know, and now with the election of the least free trading president we've seen in a really long time here, uh, but also protectionists elsewhere around the world, uh, the, uh, the landscape has changed massively. And, and businesses, when they're trying to think about where to hire and where to invest, are trying to understand what the hell's happening and uh, where is safe to uh, to build the next factory. Yeah. So as you think about, there's a massive trend towards trade and as this globalization ramped up. And now you've got certainly Trump is has, has renegotiated or trying to renegotiate different trades. Do you think the NAFTA deal, as, as it became the new the New Deal, um, was there anything really meaningfully different in there? And, and then how do you see the sort of big China negotiation that, that's been taking place and, w- and where that negotiation goes? Uh, yeah, boy, and they're, they're not quite uh, polar opposites, but uh, the NAFTA thing, uh, the NAFTA, the new NAFTA, we should, USMCA, we'll, we'll give it its own acronym, um, is, uh, is, is uh, an improvement upon NAFTA. Uh, in many ways, is uh, way better than the removal of NAFTA, which some had threatened. Um, there's some elements, such as some digital chapters within the uh, within the uh, new framework, that are part of 
were elements as well of the of the deal that got scotched, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But but envision trade as it really is today, which is increasingly digital and frequently services. And so there are efforts to try to think about how do we protect America's ability to export digital services and to protect cross-border data flows. And so in those ways, uh, that's, uh, that's, it's a meaningful improvement. Again, you got to compare it. You can compare it both to the NAFTA that we had, but also to the possibility of a free fall of no deal between the, the big three in North America, which would be an economic disaster. Um, it was amazing in some ways that, that you have 300-plus votes in the House. This is the best trade deal per the Democratic caucus in the House of Representatives. This is the most enthusiastic they've been about a trade deal in many decades. You know, and a lot of that is because uh, President Trump and, and many of his trade team have a uh, have a uh, more of a worldview on trade closer to where the Democratic Party has been, and much further from where the party of George Bush Jr. and Sr. Uh, have uh, were on uh, on international trade policy. It's one of several ways in which the president is redefining the Republican Party issue priorities, particularly when it comes to globalization. Now, at the same time, the president is 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 uh, singing from a, a, a hymnal that the Democrats agree with, but also the Republicans agree with vis-a-vis China. And you hear from some business leaders and, and from all bipartisan government officials this belief that, that uh, with the centrally planned, communist-led China economy uh, didn't always play by the rules, and that they subsidized their own companies, many of whom were state-owned enterprises. They didn't respect American intellectual property, and there wasn't equivalent market access where they had a lot more access to our markets than we had to theirs. And various presidents uh, would, would set up strategic economic dialogues. President Clinton, who pushed for and succeeded to get permanent normal trade relations with China, and then to get China admitted to the World Trade Organization, he said he hoped and believed that uh, letting China participate in the global economy as a, as a responsible player would cause them to, to liberalize their systems and to respect intellectual property more and to play by more of the rules. President George W. Bush, uh, for whom I worked when I was at the Commerce Department, shared that worldview. It was the Washington Consensus. President Obama hoped for the same, and yet business leaders and many government leaders were frustrated you now have a much more aggressive leader in China who's uh, specifically put forward something called the China 2025 plan, which is China's desire and to be the, uh, the leader in global technology, to be less dependent upon the West, and to have more of the rest of the world uh, dependent upon their own technological leaders. And it's been a bit of a wake-up call, but it, again, it's one of the few areas where Republicans and Democrats overwhelmingly agree. Uh, for business leaders, there's, there's a lot of... Uh, welcome willingness by the U.S. government to address practices by the Chinese government that, that uh, gave them concern. But there's also a worry that that um, while there's a lot of cause for concern, we shouldn't necessarily go to full panic or to full trade war. And we've been flirting back and forth between what is a, uh, a hot trade war and a uh, kind of a slow simmer. Yeah. If they sign this deal, uh, on the 15th, it will probably slow down the boil, but it's coming back. You know, on the, on the WTO issue, real quick, then we have to take a short break. The I, I've read and heard that people say, you know, China still has this advantage from being considered in this sort of developing market, not in the developed markets, at the WTO. And people want, you know, if they changed that, they, there would be a lot of different dynamics there. Is that one of the things you see? A HAPA an issue is that possible to be renegotiated? Where do you see that? Is that is that a real issue? Well, there's a lot going on there. I mean, first, China wants uh, China wants to be not con- China wants to be considered a developed, not a developing and emerging economy, um, because uh, it's different. There are more punishments and, and more restrictions, uh, more punishments against and more restrictions on China while they're still a developing nation or treated as a developing nation, and even though they're the second biggest economy in the world largest if you measure by purchasing power parity um, the west doesn't want to give them that they don't feel like they've earned it but concurrent with that there are questions about whether the wto was effective or not Uh, the u.s the current administration doesn't believe the wto has been effective and has blocked the um the reappointment of uh appellate the appellate body there so right now it's like imagine a court system without appeals courts so, so the effectiveness of the WTO as a dispute resolution mechanism is very much in doubt uh, because uh, we don't think that they're making the reforms that we think are necessary, and we don't want to let them 
uh, have uh, have their appellate body restocked unless and until they make changes, which is separate and apart from whether China is an emerging or developing or developed economy. Very good. We're talking with Bruce Melman. Uh, we're talking about his new piece, "Deglobal: Ten Trends Defining the New World." We were talking about China, the WTO, a little bit on the trade dynamics. Um, you know, we're supposed to be signing this Phase One trade deal next week, and and Trump says we're going to start negotiations on tr- on Phase Two right away. Maybe give me your view. Anything from the China perspective? Anything you're seeing from from your friends back in China? I actually just went back to China two weeks ago.、Um, I think、uh, they're going to sign the first deal, but I don't see any substantial、um, in, uh, negotiations on on the more difficult part of any of these conflicts, like on intellectual property, on you know market access. Like uh, uh, Bruce mentioned, that you know one of the biggest uh, um, concern for U.S. companies is that you know if you're a media company, you can have business in a Chinese media company can come to the U.S., but a U.S. media company cannot go to China. So I think on these things, it's so fundamental to the way you know China governs. That I don't see any of these uh, resolutions, um, you know, get resolved soon. Now I know one of the things you and I were talking about is the Taiwan elections coming up. Maybe give for people not really versed in Asia, what's what's happening in Taiwan? Why is that important to the China dynamics in Asia? Yeah, I think、uh, tomorrow、uh, is really for I think for the Asia, this is one of the biggest、uh, political event because um, Taiwan um, there's there's this. You know, idea of is the current president is she going to you know get reelected? And she has been a little bit on the pro independence camp. You know, depends on how you define independence in Taiwan.、Um, and you know, if if she didn't get elected, that this will be a huge market surprise. Ah,、uh, the market has in Taiwan、uh, last year actually the return in, in Taiwan is higher 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 than S and P. So it is you know kind of. Betting on all the polls are saying that she will get elected, and if she didn't, this will be a huge surprise. Who, who's the candidate that's running against her? Like, and what kind of po- political angle is he is he taking? Uh, his name is uh Han、uh, Guoyu, and he's he's you know representing the traditional Taiwan、uh, party. It's the、uh, Kuomintang party, the the party that left China in 1949. Um, he's being、uh, a little bit. He's considered,、um, you know, non-establishment. So he was was gathering a lot of、uh, momentum,、uh, but he's lost the、uh, steam a little bit. And so China wouldn't like. He China would like him to get elected. China would like him to. He is、uh, a little bit more pro-China.、Um, yeah. He's、uh, you know more about、uh, you know the one China two system back、mm. framework.、Um, So you know, if he's elected, China is、uh, kind of you know will will feel happier. But right now, all the polls are you know pointing toward the current president get reelected. She's um, uh, it, you know, four years ago, people didn't feel that she has a、uh, you know the political charisma. She's not known for you know baby hugging and those things. But as of now, she seems to be you know. The, the the favorite one to to get elected, Bruce. How do you when you thinking about you know where the U.S.、Um, and the West generally? One of your slides talks about China didn't turn out as expected. What the West got wrong? As you think about just where the the whole dynamic, the political relationship is, where do you see the relationship? How do you see it evolving going forward? Well, it's both、uh, the most important and most fraught relationship. Uh, that's out there right now,、uh, with uh, given the the size of China's market, the size, the power of China economically, and the number of folks, to say nothing of military strength,、um, we're、uh, we're in a we're in a worrisome place. And、uh, I used to very much agree with the Washington consensus that uh, that uh, greater engagement with the rest of the world would would lead to、uh, liberalization and a lot of reforms within China. And, and while you did see the rise of of many Western-ish、uh, Chinese companies, at least in terms of technological capability, in terms of、uh, global prowess,、um, it, it, I don't think many analysts would say that you see uh, greater uh, political freedom. I don't think many analysts would say you see、uh, more of a of a、uh, cooperative approach on、uh, on economics and and、uh, companies that that play by always the same rules. Often it is national champions who are. Who are、uh, being groomed to dominate around the world?、Um, that's 
It's a challenge. Uh, it's in theory, you've seen the rise of a new power um, integrate effectively without uh, conflict with an existing power. But a professor up at Harvard named Graham Allison wrote a really interesting book that analyzed throughout history, going back to Athens and Sparta, 16 times when a rising power uh, kind of confronted an established power, and 12 of the 16 were war, and four of the 16 were not. I'm hoping we're in that 25% peaceful resolution. Uh, I do worry myself uh, about whether China will uh, be rich before they're old, because when the one, the demographic challenges in China are underappreciated, they're extraordinary. Uh, the one-child policy has led to a massive but rapidly aging workforce that's about to become a massive uh, uh, retiree population unsupported by a workforce of adequate size. Uh, and theirs is a nation without the same sort of safety net that we have. And so you know, a lot, of, a lot of that could lead to decelerating growth. That could lead to a lot of pressure on the Communist Party, which may not be able to, through economic growth, satisfy uh, the, the nation. Uh, and I would worry in, in a scenario like that, they're going to have two choices. One is to, uh, is to uh, fault others abroad for, for growth challenges, uh, and the other is to become a better integrated, more trusted global partner. Uh, you saw sort of the, the, the first problematic approach by Japan pre-1941, and you saw the second uh, very effective integrated uh, ally approach by Japan after 1945. Uh, I'm hoping that we find ways to work together. There are a lot of really big challenges, and, and uh, it's neither nation's interest to, uh, to have conflict. For the for the Behind the Markets podcast listeners, you could go back and get uh, the show we had Graham Allison on. That was, uh, I forget exactly when we had him on, but it, I, I read the book too, uh, Bruce. It was a great book, and it was interesting conversations. Legion, any quick response to his comments on, on yeah, China? Yeah, uh, and uh, last time we talked to Ding Ding Chen, uh, he, you know, the Chinese translator, for his book, yeah. and he is writing a second book uh, specifically on China, uh, his deep. So it will be interesting to. I think he's a little bit more uh, on the positive side. And I, if if I may also add a little bit on the Washington consensus, I think since you know I'm one of the generation who benefited from the opening of of China, I was able to come here, you know, get an education. Um, I think. Um, I still believe the Washington consensus, the general direction is still correct that overall China will get a little bit, you know, more more liberal and also more cooperative. I think it's just the speed is not as you know fast as the Western um, observers uh, hoped. And, and I think, in some way, from my own point of view, I, I think that is uh, over optimism. We have to, you know, admit that. You know, generations change and the ideas change very slowly. You know, my my father, it, it's going to be very very hard for him to completely change his conservative views uh, on many issues and suddenly embrace. You know, and I think this is somewhat similar uh, on Iran. You know, the it's in the news about how how changes can be very slow in the in the society. So I think, uh, in general, from my point of view, I think you know the direction is. Um, is is going to be uh, better than people think. Uh, right now, there's a shift in the U.S. Uh, in the Western about you know the Western Washington consensus being uh, wrong. I think the direction is not wrong, but it's the speed which you know is a little bit disappointing. Blessed are the optimists. Yes. Very good. <laughs> well, uh, Bruce, I, I got a, a headline that you were predicting we were heading into the Roaring 2020s. Any commentary? I, I don't know exactly what you, you were talking about there. Any any sense in your Roaring 2020s in <laughs> context of this deglobalization as well? Well, so it goes back to what we were talking about a little bit before. Perceiving an era of, of uh, heightened disruption where uh, financial collapses have a lot of folks worried about their future and angry at income inequality, where you have accelerating new technologies changing how we all work, live, play, and learn, and historic levels of immigration uh, uh, making a lot of folks feel like uh, the country is changing faster than they expected or maybe that they're comfortable with. And you would throw into that mix our politics are being roiled because new channels and new technologies allow the 0.1 percent uh, wealthiest to, uh, to to really impact politics. So you see gridlock. What I just described there is the Gilded Age. 
That's America in the late 1880s, the 1890s, the 1900s. And when you go back and you take a look, the parallels between America in the Gilded Age at the turn of the 20th century and today are, are, are overwhelming. I mean, the, the last time uh, immigrate, immigrants as a percent of the overall population was as high as it is today was the Gilded Age. The last time income equality was as high as it is today was the tail end of the Gilded Age. Uh, the uh, you know you had back then you had railroads you had electricity you had um, uh, uh, you know new uh, automobile and and today of course you have the internet and you have social and and, and mobile uh, technologies um, and and in both cases you have uh, what feel like a bit gridlocked politics but when you look back at the last Gilded Age what you found is the system reformed and so to deal with these new business tycoons who, in areas such as oil and railroads, uh, created things that had never existed before to reduce competition called trusts, they invented antitrust law in 1890 and 1913. Uh, and likewise, to deal with income inequality, they amended the Constitution for an income tax. And there was worker safety laws and food safety laws. And you know, while a lot of folks were very worried about those sort of ac economic reforms killing capitalism, I would argue the 20th century was a pretty awesome uh, proof that capitalism can be wildly successful, even if from time to time you have to regulate or uh, or otherwise adjust the rules to make sure that it's it's uh, it's an inclusive growth opportunity. You had back in the old Gilded Age, you had political reforms, direct election of senators, giving women the right to vote. Uh, the high school movement was an, was a successful attempt to say American kids shouldn't have education ending in the eighth grade and inconsistent. It should be K to twelve. Uh, for all kids, paid for by taxpayers and imparting the skills needed for the last industrial revolution. So given the parallels of the age then and the age now and the reforms that we saw then, we tried to imagine, well, what are the reforms that may come over this next decade? That was my next question. You teed it up perfectly. <laughs> what are these big reforms we're going to do? Well, and the short answer is we don't know exactly who's going to win, who's not going to win. The 2020 election, one of the, one of the obvious bumper stickers will be um, capitalism versus socialism. That's what the White House wants to turn this. They want to make it a referendum on your belief in economic systems as opposed to, or a choice between economic systems as opposed to a referendum on the president, and if you like what he says in Twitter or not. Well, if it's Bernie, um, you will get there. I mean, if it's Bernie if versus Bernie Trump. totally get there. If it's Senator Warren, we'll get there. It's pretty hard to tag socialist onto Joe Biden, but, yeah. uh, but you know, you never quite know what Senator Biden's going to say, and maybe he'll make it easier for you. Um, beyond that, though, take past the bumper sticker, it feels like there are three really huge categories that reforms will, will fit within. Uh, category one is uh, the, uh, the uh, safety net that exists in our country. I mean, first of all, it's unaffordable. When it was built, it was built where people would have five to ten years of retirement before they would pass away. There were 15 workers for every one retiree. Um, today, it's a third of your life or more. It's two and a half workers per every retiree. And by the way, uh, back then, you'd have a job that would be your career, and that's the field you'd work in for your life. These days, you're going to change jobs. You're probably going to change careers. So a safety net based upon a short retirement with a 15-to-1 worker ratio is not what we need. We need something that helps folks uh, adjust to the new fields they're going to have to be able to learn and work in. Um, there's, that's a huge, hard set of issues is number one. Number two, um, there really are questions about whether uh, competition remains alive and well, whether the Chicago school was right then and is right forever, and, and the, the data economy is, is, um, is irrelevant. It's just a matter of as long as prices aren't going up, everything's competitive. A lot of observers have, have re uh, see, uh, believe that when you look at Google's dominance and things such as search or operating system for the Android mobile for the Android phones, um, Android operating system. When you take a look at Amazon's dominance in e-commerce, and they're they're both serving as the referee and as a as a uh, participant in the fight, um, that maybe we need to reimagine competition policy to make sure there are opportunities. There were more new businesses started every week in the Carter administration than there have been in the Trump administration, which doesn't seem like my and your interpretation of how the 70s should be different from today, yet that's the data. Um, and so there are already a lot of investigations. It doesn't mean we need to max out regulation, but we ought to take a look at the question about uh, in a data economy, maybe rising prices isn't the only measure, and maybe dominant yeah. platforms who are also market participants have issues. The last area is, is um, how do we expand the winner circle?
McKinsey wrote a great report a year ago looking at what they call a superstar economy. And the punchline was, if you have the right skills, the right education, you work in the right sector, you're in the right city, you've never had greater opportunities to be more successful and you command a greater share of, of the spoils. But if most people feel like the system is rigged against them and they don't have an opportunity to make life better for their kids, they're going to vote for change. They're going to vote for disruption. They're going to vote for populists. And the rules that investors need to, of, of greater certainty and the rules that I think the world needs of greater cooperation aren't going to come unless we can figure out policies that, that reignite the American dream and make people feel there's a greater opportunity in the future. We're talking with Bruce Melman of Melman, Cassignetti, Rosen, and Thomas. Uh, interesting. I mean, I think one, in terms of tying it to also to some of the market implications, I mean, I think one of the big dominant stories for the markets have been just the big dominance of these big platform growth stocks, the Googles, the Amazons um, that, you, that you're talking about. And I think one of the p- things people are watching is, will there be a return to value is, is will there be some of this disruptive regulations? And I think your point is, you know, on a Google where they're basically, quote, unquote, giving it away for free, their platform um, in some ways, like what, how do you, where do you disrupt Google? How would you, do you, do you see anybody trying to lobby for those kind of things? Uh, <laughs> more than that, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you are seeing at the U.S. Department of Justice, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, a whole bunch of state attorneys general, the House of Representatives Judiciary Committee, the European Union, uh, all have live fire drills on antitrust looking at Google, uh, looking at Facebook, and uh, all but the state attorneys general are looking at Amazon. Uh, that was moving. That moved faster than I thought it would have moved last year, and I think it's going to move faster than uh, – a lot of people expect this year. I will be surprised if there isn't one or more U.S. versus fill-in-the-blank of uh, 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 Google, uh, maybe Facebook uh, or Amazon, or you know, one, two, or all three uh, actions brought by the Department of Justice. I, I think it's um, you know, there's uh, there's legitimate questions about this, and and you can, as you know, you can go online, you can find all kind of folks debating all sides of this. Um, but uh, but it really does seem like we've we've hit a level of dominance that that you know go back and take a look. That's what they thought about IBM's mainframes that led to an antitrust suit. That's what they felt about Microsoft's absolute monopoly on uh, on the operating system, which which screwed Netscape Navigator. It led to an antitrust lawsuit. It sure feels like we're going to see between one and three this year. Um, Bruce, I have a question. How um, U.S. and uh, emerging market, which you know dominated by China, is really the most concentrated, you know, um, uh, indexes. And, you know, in China, the top uh, two or three companies literally also uh, dominates just like in the U.S., like Tencent and Alibaba. Like, how are these regulations, you know, reforms you are seeing, are they going to impact these companies, the foreign well, companies? You ask a great question. There's a little bit where a lot of the, you know, China doesn't allow many of the U.S., competitors in China and many of the Chinese platforms aren't successful or aren't working in the United States. Um, uh, so you start with right now there is a, a bit of a, of a separation for whether it's political reasons or, or otherwise. Uh, the the uh, observers call it the splinter net. I think we're already there. I think it's going to get worse. And I think it's three ways, not two ways. And at the core, I think it's that the goals of three regions are radically different. So the goal in Europe is to protect people and protect legacy businesses. So they take a let's be very regulatory approach uh, to to uh, tech platforms, and part of why you don't see a lot of startups, but it's also why they're leading in areas such as or leading. They're they're ahead uh, in putting forward uh, things such as privacy regulations and maybe soon AI regulations. In the United States, it's not about protecting people. It's about empowering people. We have a big tradition of free speech, and so as a rule, the platforms have protection um, against their being liable for whatever you or I or anybody else says on the platforms, very light-touch regulation. We have tons of startups, but a reasonable case that we don't protect consumers on things like privacy as much as we might. And in China, at least my observation is the the, the overarching Internet policy is to control people. And so you have things such as social credit scores, and you have very strict rules about access uh, to, uh, to information and to users, and there is an anonymity, um, and, uh, and there isn't free speech. And uh, it has allowed China in some areas to be extraordinarily successful 
in uh, in AI. Alipay is huge. Tencent is huge. Alibaba is incredible. They don't have generally competitors, uh, but they also don't have a lot of freedom. And I don't see how you reconcile those three contrasting global views on what Internet policy ought to be. And as a result, we run this risk of uh, what was a, uh, a global Internet where nobody knew you were a dog will increasingly be a regionalized Internet with, uh, with, with pretty strict rules. Um, so in, if, for example, there are regulations uh, coming out against Amazon, would those regulations potentially impact companies like Alibaba, which is doing you know, a lot of uh, business in the U.S. as well? So if it's regulations, yes, because regulations aren't specific to a company. Regulations would apply to anybody operating uh, any kind of business. Um, so, for example, the privacy regulations that the EU put forward because they were fundamentally upset about Google and somewhat Facebook's business practices uh, actually allowed Google and Facebook to grow their market share. But for a lot of startups, they can't afford the compliance. And for a lot of non-platform companies, they have to comply. So regulations apply to everybody. An antitrust suit or investigation is very precisely aimed at one individual company. Likewise, an investigation and a fine, as we're seeing countless in Europe against American companies, are, are individually targeted, though one presumes that if you go after a company for a violation of a rule or regulation, you don't just go after foreign companies, you'd also go after domestic companies for the same thing. So we're in our final maybe minute here, Bruce. Um, any final closing thoughts as you think about this de-global trend, how you think it's going to play out, predictions, or any other uh, insights that you want to share that we haven't covered yet? Boy, I've talked so much, I can't think of too much I haven't said other than I really do uh, think that uh, the, the core... To, the core need to make it all work is we need to all accept the changes in technology, changes in geopolitics, logically demand changes in public policy, and a failure to change public policy in ways that make it that help more people more broadly lead to these populist pushbacks, whether it's right of center or left of center. And what's always made our system both a democracy and a capitalist economy so successful is the fact that it's uh, it's able to evolve and it's able to uh, respond to new technologies and to new societal and new geopolitical realities uh, so that uh, most people have most freedom. And in, and uh, final place, people can find a little bit more information. You mentioned your Twitter handle, but from any other places to, find, to follow you? That's probably the easiest. Uh, at B-P-M-E-H-L-M-A-N is probably the easiest uh, first place to go through. We do have a website, Melman Castagnetti, but it's hard enough to pronounce, let alone to say all the letters. Yeah. Well, thank you for so much for sharing your insights. We'll link to your presentation. Thank you much, so much for joining for us. Thanks for having me on. You've been listening to Behind the Market, Sirius XM 132. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Lee Chen. Thanks for being in the studio. Dion Simpkins, our sound engineer on the board. Patty Hall, our, our producer. Listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.